we are going to be looking in the New Testament in just a few moments. If you want to open yours to the book of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at two major passages today. If you need a Bible, there's a few over here on the side. But uh, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in just a moment. So it seems to me, as we have been together in these moments, you have been able, most of you anyway, uh, to be able to experience, maybe enjoy God's presence. Others of you uh, may be here today a little bit challenged. Uh, There may be circumstances that are tugging on your heart and occupying your thoughts. And uh, as we were singing this last song, I just felt an impression that God wants to bless you in whatever state you are right now. So let's bow together and let me pray for you. Father, um, it means a lot to us that you have the awareness of how we're doing at any given moment. And I just want to pray for my friends today that have their heart or their mind occupied with stuff. I pray right now that they would know a touch from you. That the heart would be lifted that the thoughts would be encouraged, that uh, they would know your embrace on their life right now. We pray that you give us all ears to hear and minds to comprehend those things that you want to speak into our lives about right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when you think about church, what do you think about? Do you think about the mega church, the big church, those kinds of churches that you can see on television that fill big buildings and big arenas and maybe even have tens of thousands of people attending? And uh, uh, it's an incredible, you know, experience. Do you think about the more small, maybe even rural kinds of churches that uh, everybody knows everybody, and maybe uh, they've lived in a similar community for decades. Or do you think about something in nostalgic terms? You have warm fuzzies when you think back on church, and maybe you even have Thomas Kincaid kind of images. You know, they're just all warm and fuzzy and full of light about church. Or... Did you come from a situation that, uh, you know, the structures and the buildings were just like really old and you walked around and it was just kind of creepy and scary and, you know, you'd walk down the hall and it would creak. I, I mean, I've been in a lot of those buildings and it's like I wouldn't want to be there alone at night. You know what I mean? So what, what's your thought? What's your sense when uh, you consider Church. Obviously, I've just mentioned a bunch of buildings. And when we talk about church, we're talking about people that are inside these buildings or that that gather in these places. So when you think about people, do you think like of a, a family of friends where people 
care about each other and engage warmly, uh, kind of have uh, a tight-knit uh, connection with one another? Or, or do you think about conflicts and church fights? I've seen both. I've seen these warm family kinds of things, and I've seen some real knockdown, drag-out kinds of things that uh, were heart- hurtful to people and certainly harmful to uh, God's reputation with people. Do you think of power, authority, rules, maybe even abuse in the church? When we say church, so many things could be coming into our thoughts and into our feelings right now. Where are you with that? Why, you say? Would I even be involved in church when I think about some of the negative things that could take place? I know some of you are in the house today and you've been hurt and you've been wounded by churches, by church leaders, by people not being there the way you thought they might be there at a time of need. And so it kind of raises that question, especially with respect to the institutional church. Why would somebody invest their time and their life in such a deal. Why not just pray, read some scriptures and be inspired? Why not just be spiritual? Well, the quick answer, the short answer to that question is because Jesus loves his church. Sacrificially gives of himself to his church. And in fact, the Bible says the church is like a bride to Christ. And he is at work constantly in blessed ways, the Bible says, to sanctify or to make holy, to make healthy, to make pure, to make right his church. The Bible also says that the church is the hope of the world. It's through the church that God is going to continue to reach out to people and redeem people and bring help and hope for a better day to people. Uh, God is highly committed to his church. And just because there are some poor examples and some poor experiences in churches is not cause for us to like throw up our hands and give up on the church. You know, there's some people that are poor excuses for examples of people. And so we don't give up on the entire human race because of that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul gives us these words about the church. He said, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now, you see in that passage at least two relational dimensions to church. There's a vertical dimension where we relate as a church to God. And uh, Christ himself is the head 
of his church. He's the one that gets to call the shots. He's the one that gets to say, I want this church to function in this kind of way, and I want it to carry out my desires in that kind of way, etc. So there is an entire vertical dimension as we relate to God in church. And then there is a horizontal dimension where we relate to one another. And the text says that God in his wisdom and in his genius, if you will, brings us together in certain kinds of context and congregations so that we fit together perfectly. He has uniquely designed you. He has uniquely gifted you and and, uh, enabled you with talents so that we need you and you and you and you and you, all of us collectively together so that we become the body of Christ. It doesn't happen without every single one of you. And there's a lot of implications that go with that if, if God intends for all of us to fit together and none of us is, in, is uh, dispensable, we're all indispensable, then where are you in the life of the church? Are you knowing Christ as the head and are you relationally engaging with one another so that you fit and they fit and we all fit together in a way that honors Christ and makes a difference in this world. The relational dimensions of the church, the vertical and the horizontal, the relational dimensions of the church are formed and they are sustained by what the Bible calls covenant. What a great, rich, nuanced word, covenant. In short, it is a reference to two or more people that enter into a committed agreement, kind of like a contract, but even more so. And of course, in in contracts or in covenants that we might establish with each other, we will have some conversation, we'll have some negotiation, we will have a meeting at a common place and there make commitment with one another. It's not so much that way with God. When we talk about covenants that happen with God, there is no negotiation. God acts like God, and he sets all of the parameters, and he says, would you like to be in relationship with me? If so, here it is. Enter into covenant with me. Now, it's not like he brings nothing to uh, the relationship. He calls for us to come to him with certain kinds of commitments. And he comes to us with certain kinds of commitments. Just a quick review through the Old Testament. You'll see in Genesis 9-11, God said to Noah, I established my covenant with you. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And you know much about that story. And then in Exodus 34, God said to Moses, Behold, I make a covenant, and before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been wrought in all the earth. And you may recall a number of those miracles and marvels that God did in the day of Moses. And then in Psalm 89, God said to David, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I had sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your descendants forever. I will build your throne for all generations. And, of course, we know that was ultimately fulfilled 
through the generations in Jesus. We could go on and on with what the Bible says about covenants and how God has acted in covenant. Basically, our Bible is divided into two covenants. There's an old covenant and a new covenant. We most of the time refer to that as an Old Testament and a New Testament. But that's what it refers to. It refers to a covenant or relationship that we have with God. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bible and you uh, found that text, let's look together in chapter 8, beginning with verse 8, because there God will begin to speak more specifically about the new covenant and the covenant that you and I get to enjoy with him today. So in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 8, God found fault with the people and he said, the time is coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, which is a way of referring to people of God or people who follow God. So the time's coming that I'm going to make a new covenant with those that follow me, with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So, verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. And I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, there's a whole lot that we could say about that. We're just going to spend a couple of minutes here. But here's the point in what God is saying with this new covenant. He's saying, in the old day, I wrote out that covenant, the contract, if you will, on tablets of stone. You remember that whole thing on Sinai with Moses, and he comes down, and he's got the tablets, and it's kind of summarized in those ten statements or those ten commandments. He said, but they weren't faithful to that. And so as I engage this new covenant with people, I will now write upon the heart. I will now put my word and my will and my ways into their mind. And so we move from a, shall we say, more externalized kind of covenant to a more internalized kind of covenant. Which is to say this. God is is committing that he will be so interactive with us that he will put his will in our hearts and minds so that we will know what he wants us to know. And not only that, he says, I'm going to impact your emotions. I'm going to impact your feelings so that you will want to do what you know to do. So, friends, here's one of the great clues As to whether you are in covenant with God or not. As to whether, as we were talking about last week, you have been born again and you have a new nature and a new life from above, from Christ. Here's one of the ways that you know it. He puts his will in your heart and mind so that you know 
These are the things that God wants out of my life. These are the things that God's up to around my life. And you not only know it, you want to engage it and do it and be involved in it. So as one uh, old preacher from another generation said it, he impacts my know-so and my want-to. So that I know what he wants me to do and I want to do what he wants me to do. That's how you know you're in covenant with him. That's going on inside of you. Knowing, desiring. Now this gets expressed out in a couple of different levels. One level is what we would call the universal church. The universal church is to say everybody that has ever believed in Jesus, everybody that has ever been in covenant with God, uh, all times, all places, that would be his church. That's the universal church, all times, all places. But there's another expression of it, and that's what we would call the local church. And that's uh, where a local gathering of followers of Christ Meet together for purposes of experiencing God, worshiping God, serving God, making a difference in God's world, etc. And so let me get a little more specific about how that plays out on the local level. And why church on a local level is necessary, not optional. So now I'm asking you to look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here, uh, as you may know, Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth. And we have first and second. So there's a lot of correspondence going on between Paul and this church in Corinth. And some of it was of an instructional nature and some of it was of an affirmation nature and some of it was of a correction nature. You're screwing up here, and you've got to make some kind of change. And that's where we're looking today in chapter 11. Paul had gotten wind of what was going on in the fellowship of the church. How were they relating to one another? He found out that there were divisions. There was divisiveness. And in not just the fellowship, but in the worship. Specifically regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, if uh, you have experienced the Lord's Supper in most Protestant-type churches, uh, you have experienced probably something along the lines of a small piece of bread or a wafer and a small cup of either juice or wine. Not so in the old days. For in this day that Paul's going to be talking about, when they would come together for the Lord's Supper, it was like a full meal. They would call it a love feast. And here's where part of the problem was. Some of those, it was, you know, it's kind of like a potluck. Some of those who had more wealth and more resource would bring a lot of sumptuous stuff to the Lord's Supper time that they were going to experience together. However, they'd start chowing down and drinking up before everybody else got there, particularly the more poor among them. And so a lot of times, by the time some of the more poor had gotten there, almost all the food and all the wine was gone. And so Paul addresses all that in chapter 11. Let's pick it up in verse 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, 
there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it, no doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's kind of getting in their face about this. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I want you to see out of those verses, first of all, that the church, the local church, the local expression of the church is established by the covenant of Jesus that is expressed in his shed blood for us. Verse 25, he said, this new covenant that happens in my shed blood for you is in this context of this local gathering. So he has established covenant with us as individual followers, and he has established covenant with us as a collective group of followers. So the church is established by his shed blood, that new covenant, and it is controlled by that shed blood in the new covenant. He says, in the context of this uh, chapter, he's saying, how can you conduct yourselves like this in light of the shed blood of Jesus? Does this reflect in any kind of way about what kind of sacrifice he has made for you? The same covenant that binds us to God is the covenant that binds us to each other and guides how we conduct ourselves in both of those relational dimensions. Now, it's for this reason that this church that we call Meadowbrook even exists. That he has, by the shedding of his blood and the atoning of our sin, bound our hearts to himself and then relationally began to bound our hearts with one another. A church is not just a gathering of people who will sing a song of praise or listen to a word taught. A church is a gathering of Christ followers who have been bound with Christ and who by covenant will bind themselves to one another. That's what a church is. If you don't have that covenant-based commitment both to God and to each other, you don't have a church. You have something else. Now, they can do a lot of church-type things. But if they are not bound to one another in a covenant 
commitment, they're not a church. And it's the same thing with a marriage. See, people can cohabit. But unless they have entered into a lifetime covenant commitment, they're not married. Now, they may have a lot of experiences that are like a marriage by cohabiting. But until they enter into a, a thing that the Bible describes as a covenant commitment, well, they don't have a marriage. And so here's the deal, friends. I would not cohabit with Sherry unless we had a covenant together. And we were making a lifetime commitment out of it. And I would not be involved and be invested in this group and this gathering for the longevity that I've been doing unless we had a covenant and commitment together to that end. And so you'll see on the backside of your insert notes the statement of our church covenant. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of things about that and then we're going to be through. We've divided up our covenant What's it look like to be in committed relationship with one another here at Meadowbrook? We've divided that up into four areas, and here's a quick look at that. The first is this. I will protect the unity of my church, of of Meadowbrook in particular. Now, why is that important? Because the church reflects the character of Christ, the character of God. And God is not in disunity with himself. He is integrated. He has integrity. And so, by the way that I am unified with my church, reflects on him. And so I will protect that unity by acting in love. Now, a lot of times love is gracious, right? Kind, gentle, patient, long-suffering, right? But then sometimes love is tough. And it can be a little hard. Because the best, most caring thing that you could do for me, or that I could do for you, comes in kind of a hard way. So that's why uh, the, the, the verse tells us, we will speak the truth. Which can be a hard thing to hear sometimes. In love. We'll say it as kindly, as gently as we know, but it may still pack a punch. I'll protect the unity of my church by acting in love, by refusing to gossip. Now, some of us enjoy gossip a little more than others. Some of us make a little sport out of it. But with respect to the church, it's non-negotiable as far as God's concerned. We just cannot and will not gossip about each other. We won't talk about each other in denigrating in ways that are destructive and tear one another down. And I will protect the unity of my church by following the leaders. Now, let me just say, in this church, every leader understands his or her role is to be like an under leader to the head, Jesus Christ. So the primary responsibility of leaders at Meadowbrook is, what does Jesus want to do with his church? It's not what do I want or what do I think is best. The primary role of leaders around here is prayerfully discerning what does Jesus want for his church and how then will we say that to the rest of the congregation, facilitate that, lead that. And if that's the kind of leaders that we have, and I think we do, then I protect the unity 
of this church by following leaders. That doesn't mean we never question a leader, never challenge a leader. Are you sure you thought that through biblically? Are you sure that's what Jesus is wanting for his church? Uh, we have that kind of relational freedom and accountability with one another. In the second place on our covenant, it says, I will share the responsibility of my church. As we were reading in Ephesians a few moments ago, every single person is indispensable. God has done something in you and something in one another so that we must be together. We must collectively fit to be his body. And so that means every single part of the body has responsibility. Nobody gets to be on the bench with respect to God's team. Now, I don't know about you, I never in sports liked bench time. It seemed like I got a little more than I wanted. I never liked bench time. I always liked game time. I wanted to be in there. And with respect to the church, that's the way it is. Nobody gets to be on the bench. God wants everybody in the game. And he's uniquely endowed you so you can be in the game. You go, but Scott, sometimes I get tired. Okay, if you get tired, take a break. But get back in the game. So how do I do that? Well, I'm going to uh, share in the responsibility by praying for the church's growth. Now you go, well, Scott, I don't want it to be a big old mega church. That's why I'm here instead of the mega church down the street. Well, growth has many dimensions to it. Primarily being that we grow to be like Jesus. And so I will be praying that I become more like Jesus, that you become more like Jesus, that collectively we are more like Jesus. And we reflect his character and we reflect his grace and we reflect his his blessings and so on like that. We want to definitely grow like that. We want to grow in love and the capacity that we have to care and, and the capacity that we have to extend compassion. And if this is a good deal to know God in the way that we get to know God, then we want to grow in number. We want more people to know God the way we get to know God. It'd be selfish, uncaring, and unloving to be any other way. And so, I will share the responsibility to pray for the growth of Jesus' church. And I'll be sharing in the responsibility by inviting my unchurched friends. This is a good deal. I love the friendships and the fellowship. I love the way God shows up. I love the way that God blesses. I want other people to share in that. And so I will invite. And I will share the responsibility by welcoming those who visit. Now, some of you are our guests today. So you can just tune out for just a moment. (laughs) Because Meadowbrook family, we get so comfortable around here, we forget What it's like to be new somewhere. And occasionally God allows me to go somewhere and be new there. Just to remind me. It's a risky thing when somebody walks into this place not knowing anybody else. And venturing to see, you know, is this a place that I might fit? Is this a place where I might be able to engage my heart with God? And so, let's be welcoming. Let's notice when somebody new has come in the door and care and help them feel a little more home. You would do that in your house. And so this is collectively our house unto the Lord together. Let's do that here. And then in third place, 
our covenant says, I will serve the ministry of my church. Everybody. 100%. All of us. Roll up our sleeves and serve in ways that God has given us gifts and talents and abilities. And so in the first place, I'm going to serve by discovering what are my gifts? What are my talents? Now, friends, if you're going to have any maturity in the faith, if you're going to grow in Christ at all, then there has to be some point at which you discover how has God wired you up? How has he given you abilities and talents? So that I should be able to come to your home at 2 a.m., wake you out of your sleep and say, what are the gifts and talents that God's given you? And you can go, well, it's this because it's just become who you are. And I will serve the ministry of my church by being equipped to serve. I not only need to know, oh, God's given me this ability, but I have to train and develop and then use these abilities that he has given me. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why some of the leaders that we have are leaders, because they can help us. They can equip us to do things that God has given us ability to do. And then I will serve the ministry of this church by developing a servant heart. We're all servants in here of Jesus Christ. Our leaders are servant leaders. And we not only serve him, but we serve him by serving one another. And then in the last place on our covenant, it says, I will support the testimony of my church. That is to say, what's the reputation of this church? When other people look at this church, what do they see? What do they hear? What do they think about this place? I'm going to support how this church looks to the uh, onlooking world by attending faithfully. That's to say... I'm going to kind of demonstrate with my presence how important this church is, how much it matters to God and how much it matters to me. By living a godly life. Now, maybe you've done this, but occasionally you'll see somebody and the way that they conduct themselves and the way they have their attitudes and all this kind of stuff. And then later you find out they go to such and such church. And you're like, wow, what kind of church is that? If you can, you know. And it reflects poorly on the testimony of that church. And people look at us in the same kind of way. And then I will support the testimony of my church by giving regularly. God matters so much to me, and what He's doing in His church matters so much to me. I prioritize the financial resource that He entrusts to me. In ways that I give. And I give generously. And I give sacrificially. Because he's so good. And he's done so much in my life. So how do you respond to all that? Let me just make two or three suggestions about what might be appropriate responses. Regarding the church. Does God want to change your vision? How do you see the church. You know, maybe you have you still have some baggage about church that he just needs to unpack some of that and heal some of that and help you process and work through some of that so that you can see your vision is fresh and clear and crisp. This is the bride of Christ. 
I, I know it's frail. I know it's got problems and all that kind of thing. But it's the, it's the bride of Christ. He sacrifices himself for the bride. He loves the bride. He's committed to do redemptive things through the bride. Maybe you need fresh vision. Maybe you need a fresh attitude. And attitude is sometimes reflected through pronouns. Like, what are they doing down there at that church? I mean, is this where God's planted your life? Is this our church? Are those people down there at that church? What's your attitude about all of that? Are you in the game? Are you on his team? And maybe your attitude reflects that. Or maybe God wants to change your prioritization. You can see the church for what she is and what, what Jesus intends for her to be. And your attitude is positive about those kinds of things. But you let a lot of other stuff creep in there. And you want to have it a high priority. But uh, I've got this I've got to run after. And I've got that I've got to run after. And I've got this other thing I've got to run after. And, and the next thing you know, church is like 4th, 5th, 10th, 15th, 20th on the prioritization list. Maybe he wants to adjust that. Maybe he wants to adjust your commitment to his church in some kind of way. Let's talk to him about that, all right? Let's pray for a minute. So, Lord, we sought to just uh, think and reflect and now pray about your church and what you are up to with your church. I pray that you would communicate with our hearts, with our thoughts right now. Just like the covenant says, that you put it in our heart and you put it in our mind. What your will and your ways are and that we want. You stir our desires to want to do what you're up to. So, Father, right now. We pray that we would respond to the thoughts and to the feelings that you're stirring in us in ways that honor you, that bless you, and that develop your presence in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.